Explore, engage your curiosity and get switched on to learning. You're listening to a lecture from the Enfield Thinks pop-up learning series by Bert Beck, University of London. Just to sort of kick off about work being something which is significant for what happiness and well-being, this is a quote from Studs Tergel, who wrote a very famous book, uh, I think it was 1970 in America, uh, and what he did is he basically went around to all different companies and organisations and he asked people about their work, how they felt about it, did they like it, did all sorts of different types of jobs. And he cited in this Work Foundation report, which did a big survey of well-being at work, and uh, see if it means anything to you. So he said, work is about a daily search for meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than torpor, in short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday to Friday sort of dying. He, he was sort of saying this was good work, you know. And what is interesting about this is he wasn't just talking about people who were doing obviously, you know, um, creative jobs. He says that, you know, people even in mundane jobs can find ways um, of, you know, th finding um, value and recognition. And there's been a new book um, that's come out in the UK by someone called Joanna Biggs, who's done something similar, not on a uh, large scale. I can't remember what it's called now, but she, it's been reviewed in quite a few of the newspapers. And, and she does the same thing. She goes around and talks to people at work. And it's all about trying to find some sort of you know, meaning, what, what, what is uh, meaning, value, and work. So broadly speaking, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the importance and, um, of work in the context of key happiness and well-being indicators, i.e. what's the link between work and happiness? And I guess the two kind of indicators we're going to look at most are, you know, material well-being, money, and psychological well-being. Uh, and the two are important, I think, particularly the second. Um, the second is look a bit about what research into the workplace tells us about good work. And there are some key things like uh, engagement and, I mean, you know, it depends what we want to do. I mean, I go into um, part of my work for Birkbeck over the last couple of years, which has been fascinating, um, is going into public sector organisations, mostly uh, job centres and HMRC offices, and just talking to them about well-being at work and just seeing what they think about it, how they feel about it. Uh, it's very interesting. And a lot, of the, a lot of the research comes down to engagement. Are the staff engaged? You know, are they committed to the work they do? And is there any scope at all for fun at all in the day? You know? And then, is there some scope for autonomy? So is there some way in which people can find ways to sort of direct their own workload? And what I found in public sector organisations is that people are very committed, but they feel quite sort of, they feel quite stagnant and sterile at their work. That's, what I, that's what's been really interesting. They also tend to feel that the decisions that um, are influencing their work are not taken by them anymore. You know, it's sort of quite high up the chain. And there's something quite important, I think, about um, people feeling they can, they can direct their own work. And then lastly, uh, there's lots of well-being at work stuff, but then just lastly, have a little look about, you know, the ways in which our work culture, as in the UK's work culture, particularly London's work culture, encourages or inhibits happiness and well-being. And there's lots of stuff about how um, the way that we work, the, the hours that we work, is actually um, is, is, is not beneficial for... Um, our work-life balance and happiness and well-being. If you ask people about different areas of their life, work-life balance always is quite low on satisfaction. People always feel that their work-life balance isn't sufficient. So, um, and that's one of the reasons why London 
when you look at the overall statistics, comes out lower than the rest of the country in happiness. Quite interesting, really. So uh, basically, the, the pattern is the south is kind of happy and the north is kind of a bit less happy. And London is this sort of anomaly in between. Uh, but Northern Ireland actually is the happiest region, according to the data. Uh, anyway, that's another session. That's another thing entirely. One of the um, key pieces of research that's been done, and this is by Richard Layard, who's a UK economist. Uh, he used to work for the LSE and has become, in fact, he was the happiness czar. Um, do you remember that they used to have czars in government? You know, you used to have happiness czars and um, social exclusion czars and worklessness czars and various other things. And he was, you know, he, 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 he looked at all of the data for people who reported high levels of happiness and he said, right, this is the, these, are the, these seem to be the, the key indicators of subjective, i.e. personal happiness and well-being. And work was number three. And he said it's really, you know, it's important in terms of um, good work that's satisfying. And you see some of the other ones um, that were key as well. But, of course, what's interesting about work is to think about it in terms of how it impacts on all the other areas as well. And that's what he was saying, that the reason that work matters so much often is because... Obviously, they help financial situation, but they kind of help other things in those key indicators as well. So I just wondered what you thought about the way in which work matters apart from simply giving you enough money to survive. I mean, that's one of the, <laughs> one of the arguments is quite simple. You know, if, you, if you're going to spend so much time at work, you know, let's make it as good as possible. Some people find relationships, you know, at work as well. What, I mean, one of, the, one of the interesting, the flip sides of, of work is the significance of unemployment. It's another way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. and, and there's such, uh, it's very striking actually, I'll show you in a sec, how, um, how much happier people seem to be than unemployed people if they're in work or retired, not having to work necessarily. So there's something also about how, about mental health, but also something about social recognition as well. And I think, you know, and this is, this is my opinion, but I feel that one of the problems of our work culture is that people are very defined about their work, including if they're not working, the scapegoating and stereotyping that goes on. You know, and I've been on the dole. You know, every, you know, at different times of people's lives, people will have struggled. You know, and I think there's a, there's a, but there's a big culture of scapegoating at the moment, um, which perhaps is not quite... Um, is not quite reflecting reality. And, and it's a, it supposedly denotes a culture of not working. I have to say, though, I mean, what's interesting is that um, quite a lot of the political rhetoric are about generations of people who haven't worked. They say that there are generations of people who've never worked. And so what sociologists and academics, they've gone out and tried to find those families. And they've never found one. They've never found one example of it. So it's the extent to which this worklessness is a cultural issue or a or a simple unemployment issue is quite interesting. But these are words that are sort of come crop up um, time and time again. Uh, in terms of your point, you'll see from the graph, th the green graph is probably the left, which is probably the most significant thing. It looks at you know, levels of people's life satisfaction, it's out of 10, uh, depending on their employment status. And so what you see is that employed people tend to be happier than unemployed people, if you look at the green um, bar. But you'll also see that there's, a, there's other category called inactive, which includes all the people who don't fit into either of those categories, i.e. they're choosing not to work or they're retired. Uh, and we, you, you saw from the, uh, if you were here in the first couple of sessions, you'll see that, you know, in terms of the way that age and happiness statistics work, is that it's, it's smile-shaped. People start off at 18 quite happy and then they get gradually more unhappy uh, until it sort of it bottoms out at about sort of, 
sort of middle eight, sort of 50, and then it sort of goes, and then gradually, after about 65, it goes back up again. Um, and 65 to 74, and 18 to 24 are the happiest age groups. So it's interesting that it's not about not working, it's about choosing not to work and not having to work. Um, you know, some people retire, but they still do jobs. You know, they still volunteer, or they still, but it's a choice. And this is what's interesting. But it's a very interesting thing about um, the fact that that age group seems to be content. And I've read quite a lot of, part of my research is to read a lot of people's accounts about happiness. And what older people tend to say, it's quite interesting, is I don't have to worry about happiness anymore to some degree. Actually, I don't have to, I'm not striving. I can just enjoy what I've got now. So actually it's quite interesting that they're happy because they've given up the striving of happiness. There's something quite interesting about that. Anyway, so there is quite a lot of evidence that says, um, and this has been one of the striking things about all this um, happiness and well-being research, the significance of work, really. Um, no, you're right, and, but it's interesting. What happens with this very large-scale data is that differences tend to be quite small. It's one of the biggest differences. Health is a big difference. Relationships is a big difference. Um, where you live is a bit of a difference. But um, employment is one of the biggest differences. But I agree, it's not a massive difference. But it's interesting because, as, you, as, as people who have been here before will know, and actually I'm going to look at the history of happiness next week, it's a real turnabout. Because up until about 1800, your, one's, one's happiness and the idea of a good life was very much based on not having to work. Work was something that poor people did. And proletariat, you know, this was something that wasn't a good thing to work. Um, you know, if you think about some of the um, people who are most influential in the UK, like Darwin, Darwin didn't have to work. You know, he just chose to um, find the theory of evolution. He wasn't paid to do it. He was an, you know, so, so lots of the people that are very famous in history are people who'd never had to work at all, but they chose to work because they wanted to be interested. Uh, Lavoisier, the French chemist who ended up getting his head cut off, who's sort of widely acknowledged as being one of the people who invented, discovered oxygen. Again, he was, you know, just, he just fancied um, looking at oxygen, you know. So it's quite interesting that it was often seen as, as a status of low well-being to be in work um, up until quite recently. So it's only, it's only recently changed this idea that work is you know, good for well-being and productive. But then actually, you know, we, you know, arguably, and this is one of the other th interesting things, lots of people who sort of choose to leave the rat race, as it were, go to the countryside, you know, set up alternative communities, and, and do gardening, and they create their own work. And actually, that's also seen as quite a positive thing. But it's quite interesting, because it's, a, again, it's a real flip. And there's something about the way that cities grew up in industry, and the idea that working in factories was dehumanising, and you know, you used to send kids down there and there was no such thing as a maximum hours of week. So, but it's a really interesting cultural turnabout, the, the amount that we invest now in, in, in a positive idea of work um, compared to um, before. There's a real alignment with employment status and status per se, and I think that lots of us would think that has become, uh, that's, that's become um, uh, too fused. Yeah, I mean, I think just, I just go back to that p point about politics. Yes, I think there's a big thing. I mean, one of the one of the ideas of why Britain developed so 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 rapidly as a nation is this idea that was this pro it's called a, it's known as the Protestant work ethic, which is where it was seen as good, and God would like your in efforts to work hard and make money. Whereas before, the church was always quite you know had a sort of negative connotations. There was something about this positive idea that to industry was based on doing God's work, and it was part of actually what was what being a good Christian was. So, and then certainly through industrialization, you know, certainly this pressure to work and then our competitive lifestyles 
Um, anyway, I won't go too much. This, this sounds quite abstract, and I'll, I'm going to read you a few stories anyway later. Um, so I guess just sort of sum up, you know, so four ways in which work impacts positive and happiness, just to sort of sum up some of those ideas. Well, one is that the idea that it helps to satisfy basic material needs, as you said. However, the, the, the star and the caveat is that actually that's increasingly not the case. So when you look at poverty statistics, two-thirds of, of London's poor are working actually now. So in, interestingly, you know, again, this is partly about politics in the sense that poverty and unemployment, but actually poverty... So, that's in, so that seems to have, you know, that, that, that relationship seems to have been um, slightly um, disrupted. And, you know, one of the, lots of the research that goes on about living in London particularly is the way that it, it's no longer the case that work is a way out of poverty. You know, partly, you know, it doesn't actually mean that anymore. It's one of the, one of the live issues. Um, as we've discussed, you know, can help increase satisfactions in other well-being domains. Um, the third is that, you know, and partly because we do spend so much time working, the things that are really important to people, the things that they want to, that are meaningful um, uh, and have value, if they're expressed through work, it's quite important. Because actually it's one of the ways in which we spend most of our time. If people enjoy teaching and they feel derive meaning from it, then actually, you know, teaching for 40 hours a week is good. And what teachers often say is, I hate the paperwork and I like the teaching. You know, and quite a lot of academics like the research and don't like the teaching, and I'd probably be the other way around, actually. I quite enjoy the teaching. But, you know, certainly that's one of the ideas, you know, it's difficult to find the time to do the things that we like. So increasingly, can our work satisfy some of those more creative, you know, the idea that you are um, contributing to society or you're doing something that you're good at. And then the last way is in which work increases social esteem and recognition. You know, this idea that we're needy people and, we, and in, no matter how much we're told about, you know, sort of our own um, value of ourselves, ultimately people like to be respected by other people and work is one of the key ways. But of course that's problematic in our society because it perhaps too much is put on to the way what people's jobs are, how much they earn and what they do. Um, as an aside, I mean, one of the I went to Hove to see a friend. Anyone been to Hove? So Hove is sort of you know hippie London, you know, let's call it, just next to Brighton. And um, I met one of my friend's friends, and um, and I, I said, you know, hello, I'm David, and they said, hello, I'm whatever they were called. And I said, um, oh, what do you do? And she went, <laughs> this is my friend. She said, you can't, don't ask that down there. It's not. So I was like, well, that's just what we... So it was interesting. She said in Hove, people don't ask that question because the idea is that actually we don't attribute status to what people's working. You know, and, and like any conversation starters, it's there to get some sort of, you know, to connect with people. But I thought that was quite interesting. You know, we don't do it here. I mean, there's a very interesting book that came out. Uh, it's called Dan Pink, um, called Drive. And um, he basically went around different places in work to look at motivations, to look about what good work was. And traditionally, the idea was that there's, there's two main ways, and we know it's the carrot and the stick. Either you pay, either you incentivize performance, or you punish bad performance, you know. So either you say, right, okay, if you do something well, I'll give you some money. Um, but if that doesn't motivate you, if you don't work properly, then I'm gonna sack you. Um, in organizational terms in the public sector, it's about targets, isn't it? You know, we're going to motivate you. We don't trust you, public servants, to work well. Why would you work without a profit motive? It doesn't, I can't understand it at all. So what we're going to do is going to set these targets. Because targets don't work. I mean, it's quite interesting. You know, I haven't read any research which says targets work. Because of the way in which they're very well-meaning, 
But of course, what happens is that people manipulate targets. And the famous example is in the A&E department, I can't remember which NHS trust, which was you must be seen 45 minutes after arriving at A&E. Must be seen. So, that's a good, yeah, that's a good target. We can all agree with that. So what do hospitals do? Do they work harder to make sure that people are seen? No. What they did is kept the ambulances outside <laughs> until you, they knew, I think this was Derby or somewhere, it was one of the NHS trusts. So, so people manipulate targets. You know, it doesn't actually incentivise performance. So what Dan Pink is trying to look at is what would incentivise good performance. So, I mean, I, one, of the, one of the things he said, which I think you could almost stand for all happiness research, is you, you give people enough money to work to take the issue of money off the table. That is one of the key things he said. But, and that really applies to all happiness research, because it's basically saying you pay people enough so they don't have to worry about bills and housing. But then all the other stuff is going to come from something else, you know, and he, he talked about it, talked about the purpose motive, didn't he? Um, yeah, I mean, I think those are the three key things he's talking about there. You know, the autonomy, the mastery, the purpose. You know, and he's saying these are things that we want to do because, not because they give us money, just because it's just because we like doing them. You know, we like being good at stuff. There's no real reason for people to play the guitar when they know they're not going to be the next Jimi Hendrix. But they just like doing it, enjoy doing it. So actually, you have to play, you have to play to that. Um, and he say, yeah, money is not a useful incentive for performance. Um, and it's quite interesting because it, 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 it ties into a lot of the, uh, you know, there's Decky and Ryan who, for example, are quite big in, in, in well-being research. And, and they talk about these are psychological needs, they're saying. These are basic psychological needs that most people need. And, he said, you know, it's quite similar. They talk about autonomy. They talk about relatedness. They talk about the ability to, um, you know, have good relationships with people and competence to be, you know, to be good at stuff. As you probably worked in different sectors, you know, private sector, much less job security, but more innovation. Public sector, much more job security, but much less innovation. And voluntary sector, you know, can be quite fun and independent, but your job certainty is tiny, you know, you're usually on six month contracts. So it depends what kind of people like to do. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff about zero hour contracts, haven't there? And we'll see later that there's this the whole theory about this guy, um, one of the professors that I was reading called Guy Standing. Instead of the proletariat from Marx, he talks about the precariat. It's those whose jobs are precarious, you know, short-term, flexible labour. But, of course, some people like, it does suit some people, and it's not a one-size-fit-all um, um, problem about this type of flexible working, but it's when it's sort of, um, when it's sort of imposed on people. So in the UK, which, which profession has the strongest relationship with happiness or happy people? Vickers are the number one. Um, followed by people, it's uh, chief executive senior positions. There is a huge connection, and actually this is true with the global stuff as well. People whose job involves nature, in whatever way, high correlation with work satisfaction. Company secretaries, but also personal assistants, interestingly. Quality assurance jobs, I don't really know what that means, to be honest. But um, unhappy, pub landlords are probably the unhappiest people in the UK. There you go. <laughs> um, okay. uh, yeah, uh, debt collectors. You can, I mean, debt collectors. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And you see, there's some correlation there between jobs that are creative and jobs that are less uh, sort of what Dan Pink described as, you know, sort of less, um, less. People feel that they are um, being held in lower esteem, or they're or they're, or they're less skilled. And so there is kind of a link between high earnings and high life satisfaction, but not all the case. Not always. Um, but it is, I mean, bar staff, cleaners, and debt collectors are quite low down. 
Um, but in turn, but then what the Guardian did is they thought, right, well, let's forget. The, let, let's look at nine global surveys, and these and this was the top ten. So engineers, teachers, nurses are number three. Then other medical practitioners, gardeners, construction workers, personal assistants, farm workers, hairdressers and beauticians, and members of the clergy. There maybe there's something about autonomy, but then. You know, I have personal assistance, how much autonomy is in that, I don't know. So it's not always... Yeah, I suppose it's interesting, in, in, certainly in television and films, PAs often have quite a lot of power, don't they? Because they guard the access to the senior. But, you know, can I see them? Oh, well, no, unfortunately, Mr. So or Mrs. So-and-so is not around at the moment. Um, but anyway, the, but, these are, but these, of course, they do... So, so it does, there's some correlation with, with some of the themes that um, Pink was talking about. Uh, then just to show... I'm going I'm to ask you to, to talk amongst yourselves in a sec. But just the last... Um, survey that I wanted to show you is, is could a robot do your job uh, which was a it's an organization called Nestor have just done this report called creativity versus robots saying you know in 30 50 years time which jobs are likely to be um, you know automated so the idea is the robots are coming and uh, so workers with more creative more the more creative your job is but that does include IT and uh, so it's not just creative in terms of theater you know it's create you know element of creativity in your jobs they would be the least likely. And they reckon that some 35% of these jobs um, could be fully automated. Um, so creative occupations like artists, architects, web designers, IT specialists, public relations professionals, interestingly, safe. Um, and you can do a little quiz um, at the bottom there. Will a robot take my job? Uh, six questions. I did it. <laughs> and uh, I was relatively safe, actually. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm any relatively secure in my job, but apparently a robot couldn't do it. So, um, although sometimes I <laughs> don't always think that's true. So you can take that quiz yourself. Very six, six obvious questions. Um, but it's less, it's less about the, the sphere of work, more about um, the, the element of creativity and, and independence that people have in it. Some people don't like autonomy. Aristotle, he says, you know, the best things are between two extremes. So if you have too much autonomy, you know, you feel cut off and you don't know what to do. But in the, on the other extreme, if you're too micromanaged, you know, you won't like, you know, you won't like that either. So there's something about a, a happy medium. Yeah. Um, but, it's, but of course, some people like more autonomy than others. So when you didn't get the autonomy, right, <laughs> enough, I don't like it anymore. But one of the things I don't miss is, uh, is meetings. I don't miss meetings. I've decided that basic meetings are most of the time are a waste of time. And one of my uh, friends who works in the Foreign Office said, oh, well, we, we got around that problem about boring meetings by making everyone stand up. Because no one's going to talk about that thing that they thought was really important but isn't if they're standing up. It was quite clever, actually. So they're no longer no more than half an hour. But also at the end, to be recognized. And that's something which when we look in the second half again, it's about you, know, you want to be recognized for the work you do, not just how it makes you feel. And that quite, you know, that's a lot of good management, isn't it, is about recognizing and um, appreciating your staff. You're listening to a lecture from the Enfield Thinks pop-up learning series by Bert Beck, University of London. We were only supposed to be working four days a week maximum now, by the way. I mean, that was all, all the stuff about work in the 50s, John Maynard Keynes and economists, when, when, when um, computerisation was coming in, saying, well, it's wonderful. Because all these, you know, these robots can do these menial jobs or computers for, and we'll have four days work a week, and then one day free to do whatever we like. But weirdly, we've ended up working harder. So that's something cultural, I think. But it, we, weren't, we were supposed to only be working four days a week. It's like a little promise that was sort of taken away. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I haven't got a slide on it, but one of the one of the things that Will Hutton talks about, who's the chair of this Work Foundation, does a lot of look at work in the UK. He says that you think about motivations in two ways. One is about intrinsic motivators. That's the stuff that is meaningful for us. And then there are extrinsic motivations that are sort of status markers. And there would definitely be an idea that men would be more inclined to be, to be driven by extrinsic motivations, you know, in very sort of general terms. Um, yeah, I mean, so what did you think about this, this wacky idea that money doesn't incentivize performance that Dan Pink? I think it's true. He was interesting. He wasn't saying that it doesn't incentivize participation, and I think engagement is, yeah. But I think engagement is quite interesting, and that's going to be really people, you know, if, if, if employees feel engaged, that is, they, they buy into the organization, they feel worthwhile being in it, then, you know, it's quite striking. If you, in private sector, people make more, one, you're more productive, two, you get higher profits, uh, three, you don't you have to keep recruiting people. You know, I used to work in a charity that, you know, charities are funny places because they don't really have these sorts of HR structures. Uh, and that kind of means that it's a bit of a free-for-all and you can get treated really quite badly. And I had a manager who I, it was quite inspiring, but she wasn't, a very good, she wasn't very good at managing people. And there was this constant turnover, but it was never addressed. And it was just, it was just madness because every time you had to teach someone. I mean, one of the, the interesting, the Whole Foods example, which is to keep the ratio between the top and the bottom earners reasonably not too extreme. And that's quite an interesting idea. I mean, one of, one of the things I read about was that in 1950, the difference between the chief executive of a company and the average worker's salary was about 30 times. So if the average worker's salary was 3,000, then the chief executive was 90,000. You know, the average, it was a, between 30 to 1. Nowadays, it's 170. So the chief executive is now 170 times more than average workers. So what some companies are doing, because, you know, well, why would that? What's the problem with that? I mean, some people say there's no problem with that. The, the quote at the, the, the bottom, which says, we work hard, this is someone from Pfizer, we work hard to avoid falling into the trap that some other organisations make, assuming that doing a survey is doing engagement. And I think that's really important because what you see is all these engagement surveys that take place in the civil service, you know, it's very regimented, very long, and they're very good surveys. But if you don't do anything with them, it doesn't actually make any difference. In fact, there's lots of evidence suggests that if you consult people, but then actually do nothing about it, it's, probably, it's actually worse than not consulting them in the first place. So I think that's quite interesting. You see lots of surveys going around, but it's there's something about the commitment of the organisation to actually noticing and making some um, changes. Um, uh, I think Iceland is seen as the, no the number one company to work for in the UK, I think. Um, Tesco, I mean, Tesco's is, ver Tesco's is very high. So yeah, the story is, so this is the Seattle C Chief Executive Officer. Gravity Payments this week became the most interesting credit card company in the world. Staff at the Seattle-based company were astounded when their Chief Executive announced that he'd be dropping his own wage to £47,000, $70,000 a year, and raising the minimum wage for them to the same going to pay them all the same amount of money. Dan Price, this is the guy, um, had previously been earning $1 million a year. But he explained, and this is a good, the money didn't represent the worth of his work, just how much it would cost to attract another CEO. So what's, I think that's an interesting comment because there's, you know, in the, in the media, there's lots of talk about paying executives too much. And the argument they say is, that's the market rate. Yeah. I.e., that's what it would cost to recruit someone else. But there's an interesting, there's a disjunction there between 
what someone's what the job is worth and what the actual market says it's worth. And you know, the, the idea that actually it's become so extreme now. Anyway, he said, he put his epiphany down to a book he'd read about emotional well-being and how damaged that well-being is by worries about money. And they said, it would be fascinating to see whether prices altruism has other benefits such as improvement to productivity. And then it says, how does a company perform when its staff are motivated by loyalty, not fear? I dare say gravity payments will save lots of money on recruitment and training. I don't suppose they'll need much of an advertising or marketing budget either. <laughs> it'll sell itself. But there's one possible snag, and this is the little twist that I think is quite interesting about well-being research. Price says he doesn't need much money because he has so many rich friends who invite him to spend luxurious time with them. I dare say his revolutionary act will have them, the rich people, running for their private manicured hills. Rich people prefer to surround themselves with other rich people so they can persuade themselves that they are normal. That's not just about rich people. So that actually, if people are earning more than them amongst their peers, that's when they get annoyed. It's not people like me and you they compare themselves to. So it's quite interesting, the idea that actually social relationships are built on these types of comparisons and peer relationships. Um, uh, it was similar to the lottery example um, that I gave as well. I mean, you know, you, you can get, this is, I'll show this first, because, you know, you get all these sort of very, um, sort of, you know, very serious, meaningful surveys about, um, the types of conditions that are conducive to good work and the practices. And, but then you get some stuff which is like, you know, all right, what, what basic things make people happy in an office? And this was in the Guardian article, but it was Goodman, the office suppliers. He'd done this survey and said, look, at work, what's really important to you? What, what stuff needs to happen to make you enjoy your day-to-day -day work actually being on the job? Right, the number one was properly functioning technology. So 80% of people they are said it's important. So the second one, and this is interesting because it shows how flexible working is a bit of a double-edged sword. The people said they really liked having their own workspace. The, the indications were, and absolutely appreciating that some people like that type of work. Lots of people don't like not having their own workspace. The trend now is all about hot desking. And it's sold as innovation, and it's sold as good flexibility. The reason that people seem to not like it is, one, um, it's another thing to worry about when you get to work. Where am I going to sit? And it prejudices those people who are up with the, up with the lark. You know, if you, the earlier you get in, the more choice you have. But people also feel that somehow, with their own desk space, which they can personalise, that's quite important, they actually feel more valued by the company. You know, they have their own phone line that says, you know, this is my extension number. So it's quite interesting. It's very basic stuff about why people think it's important to have um, um, their own space, but it's not always the case. Now, the third seems a bit flippant about good coffee. Of course, not everyone likes coffee and drinks it. Um, but what it was more saying is that people like the idea that they have somewhere where they can go and make coffee and tea, and also that they don't have to pay for it. And one of the things I've realised is that um, what, people, what people in offices seem to hate most of all is when they have stuff and then it's taken away. The other one that they mention is, um, and this is something I absolutely agree with, staplers. <laughs> you spent hour, I spent hours walking around trying to find a stapler. And then people um, put their name on staplers, don't they? And you think, right, that is a red rag to a bull. I'm taking your, you know, I'm having your state. So, you know, just, so, it's, it's, so, you know, what's interesting about all this research is that it can, it can sound all very grand and, you know, it talks about capitalism and industrial, but actually, some of it's about very basic things that people, um, people like. 
I mean, the thing I've got is the place I work, where I do my birthday work and some of the freelance work I do, is a hub. And it's basically a hub for people who are doing relatively social type stuff. And they have their own businesses there. It's a very nice space in King's Cross. Uh, it was one of the first nice new buildings in King's Cross that was redeveloped. And uh, it had bean bags. So halfway through the day, you should go and have a little nap on the beanbag. It was brilliant. And there was no, you, you may laugh, and there was no social, you know, there wasn't sort of tut-tutting going on because um, the idea of us working this one full day without breaking is, is, a, is a, in historical terms, it's quite recent. You know, cultures like Spain, that used to be the norm where you'd have a break and you'd relax and then you'd go back to work. That used to be the norm. So one of the issues about the UK's productivity at work is that people don't work any better, even though they're there for longer, because they don't ever take any break. But then they took the beanbags away, and I was furious about the beanbags being taken away. And I even launched a campaign, you know, Save Our Beanbags, um, which was sort of half-joking, but I kind of, you know, it really was annoying, because I quite... Now, obviously, the idea of relaxing on a beanbag for most people is ridiculously luxurious, but actually it was important. And now it's been taken away, I'm really annoyed. Anyway, best not to go there. I mean, one of the things I found in organisations in the public sector is because there's so much, there's so many rules about what you can't do. So one of the, one of the other sort of quite banal-sounding research is about plants and nature. And um, apologies for those of you, I think I might have said this to you before in the first or second session. There was a piece of research done in a large American organisation, and they did research on sick leave, depending on where people sat in the office. So they just looked at the links. People who sat in the office and their windows overlooked a park had about 50% less sick leave than the people who windows overlooked some nasty concrete. Now, they can't prove that one links to the other, but it was quite an interesting idea. So actually, you know, organisations, especially in these very functional buildings which people work in, you know, the idea of being able to have sort of greenery and, and stuff around. Anyway, so th there's a lot of stuff which is actually about the research. It's very basic things about just little bits. Now, the research which goes sort of more deeper into values and. The, the, the key thing seems to be in the current literature is about employee engagement. That seems to be the massive thing which is being discussed. People who, you know, good work consists of being engaged with the organisation. And, you know, what is engagement? Well, it's to connect with the organisation, but it's also creating an environment where employees are motivated to connect with their work and really care about doing a good job. So there's something about how do we create engagement? And, 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 and there seems to be this sort of mixture between we as employees and workers can create our own engagement, and, and, but management and leadership can do it as well. Um, and it's usually seen as a sort of positive attitude held by the employees towards the organisation. Um, but what's interesting is that one of the organisations which are called Business in the Community, who try and look at ways in which organisations, private sector organisations, can be more friendly, community friendly, they did this whole thing about, that what they did is they went to large companies including most of the FTSE 100 index companies in the UK, you know, Tesco's would be included in that. And they looked at their engagement policies, and that was, you know, learning and development, um, opportunities for interaction with manage management and staff, what's known as open door management, where you always feel you can come in and talk to your manager. And they looked at that, and they looked about profit margins and turnover, and they found it was quite striking that they generally, um, that companies that had arrangements for employee health and well-being and looked about employees' well-being, generally did better than the other companies. And not only did they do better, they had less turnover and they had higher customer satisfaction and productivity and profitability. So the new watchword about well-being at work is all about this idea about engaging your staff and it being better um, to do so. And the four things, who, who, 
um, for employers is good leadership. Do your employees have voice? Are your managers engaging? And what's in the last point is do, your, do the leaders of the organizations have um, integrity? Because one of the problems, and I've had it, is when your organization itself is doing good work. So I used to work for a charity which used to fund people in London to run small-scale community projects. But the, so we were doing this good work, and I really believed in it, but the staff were treated really badly um, in terms of sort of work-life balance. And, and we didn't feel that the managers were modeling that integrity. So it's the idea that it's not just about policies. It's that are you modeling good behavior for employees? And if you're not, the problem is you get this disconnect, which ultimately leads to, um, to more dissatisfaction. Um, and the and, and this is you know the idea from this is if you want someone to do a good job, give them a good job to do. You know, give them something. Is there any way in which autonomy, competence, purpose can be um, to be linked in um, to the job? I found quite interesting about actually engaging staff is one getting people into a into a um, into a group and instead of asking what can we do better at work, thinking about as a team we should. And actually getting people to think about what we should be doing rather than what we're doing in terms of sort of inviting discussion. The other one is this well-being at work satisfaction wheel, which I'm going to give out if people are interested, which sort of rates about satisfaction. But the thing I found which most works well is you write a letter to your manager that you'll never send. <laughs> because so many people come and say, I hate my manager, I can't say anything, but they're, but they're scared. People are scared, and rightly so, because they're scared of punishment and... Um, being treated badly, and so I went into one organisation where they where they just had this. I had all these nice slides, and they basically didn't give a you know about my slides. All they wanted to do was talk about their terrible manager. And of course, there's a point in which you think, you know, I'm not sure what the situation is. Is it a realistic situation? And I said to them, all right, I want you to write a letter to your manager that you'll never send to them. And they went. It was incredible, and it released all this amazing tension and. But the other thing is that I find it quite linked quite well to well-being, well-being research in general, which is what happens when you write stuff down. Why is it useful to write stuff down? But what else? Because I, I actually thought perhaps these, perhaps these people are being a bit unreasonable. And the idea is if you write stuff down like that, you can actually see what you think in a more objective light. The end point was about um, was thinking about oh, what to do next. Because it was interesting, once they'd done that, they suddenly felt more able to confront or to do something about it. It was quite an interesting experience. And I kind of did it just off the hoof. I didn't really plan it. I just thought maybe I, I, needed, to, I needed them to do something else, basically, because they just weren't, list, they weren't really responding. So I thought it was quite interesting. The point was much more about the emotions of work. And I think that's, like, all this happiness and well-being stuff, people forget to how to be happier. And they forget that actually people actually feel and care and about stuff rather than plan happiness. And it's actually it's quite, really quite emotional. But it also made me think, just linked to the point I want to make now, is that the emphasis, of, and, and you know, I'll send the slides around, and you can see there's all this stuff about how to increase happiness at work, and there's lots of stuff about make sure you check your posture and go for a run in the go for a run at lunchtime and make sure you don't eat a sandwich at your desk, and there's all this stuff. But of course, in the end, you know, there is also a, work, a wider work culture and environments which are either conducive or not to our well-being, and the problem is. You know, would, it, would, I, would we even be talking about well-being at work if there wasn't such a sort of crisis about it? And when you look at some of the issues in the UK, it's quite scary, really. So, for example, we work the longest hours 
in our equivalent European countries. We worked longer hours than the French, of course. You know, so, you know, but we worked longer hours than the Germans, too. So we worked longer hours than countries that are more productive. But if you aggregate it, so I agree some people do, there's something about the culture, isn't there, I think. Because the other thing is it's not about, you know, work, one of the reasons that work-life balancing is a problem is it, you don't leave work when you leave work anymore. The expect, it's the expectation that you're available, isn't it? You know, you answer your phone and, you know, I've been on holiday with people. They've been in Croatia and it's 35 degrees and I'm sort of like, right, off we go. And she's like, no, no, I must, you know, I'm still, I say, you're on holiday. It's like, yeah, but I need to do this. You know, she was a corporate lawyer, so she's got a proper job rather than me, but, you know. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, I thought it was really sad. You know, it's constantly there. So it's something like 250 hours more per year we work than our equivalent European countries. Uh, we have shorter lunch breaks. Uh, and enjoy the fewest public holidays. But that is much better than in America, where they only get, where the average annual leave is 10 days a year. Plus, I think they're allowed a couple of duvet days where you're sort of informally allowed to sort of take a couple of, but nonetheless, I mean, that's pretty, you know. Um, well, I don't really, I can't, I can't prove the statistical connection between those. So, yeah, so, so work-life balance is seen as for lots of people as, be, as being really quite low, uh, and it's one of the lowest uh, well-being domains. Um, and if you look at sort of wider countries as well, you know, we do quite, you know, in terms of work-life balance, we do worse than lots of different countries, and the OECD is a sort of um, organ um, economic development large organisation. Now, the countries which seem to do best in happiness terms are the generally the Scandinavian countries. And one of the things, one of the reasons why they seem to work it's because they've got much more flexible and better childcare support. Um, it's much more supported in terms of, um, and men have much longer paternity leave, so the men can um, stay at home and work as well. So it's quite interesting about different types of um, work cultures. Mention the Mediterranean culture. Of course, in, in Spain, you do well to have a job at the moment. But, you know, in terms of the actual culture, it's probably better. But Scandinavia is perhaps a better equivalent because it's, you know, very affluent, highly productive but a much more sort of supported system about the ways in which people work. Uh, yeah, they do better. You know, what's interesting, wh why, why, is, why are Scandinavian countries seen as happy? Well, again, it's about this idea about equality. So it's not just about money, because I think it's always too simple to think about money. One of the reasons why income inequalities seem to be so bad for national well-being is it's not just about the fact that people earn different amounts, but they don't ever interact. So people don't mix in the same places anymore. They don't mix in the pub. They don't use the same health services. They don't use the same leisure services. So there's sort of almost ghetto disconnect. And what you get when you talk to people in you know, a place like Denmark is that they say things like, yeah, you get a postman and the banker down the pub on a Friday night. You know, there's less, there's less status division. It's quite interesting. I mean, they have a much less rooted private education system as well. But it's, it's not just about money. It's about interaction somehow. And, and one of the issues at the moment is about the fact there seems to be so, such little empathy between social classes. So on the one hand, you get sort of one of the classics, isn't it, about George Osmond being asked about how much the pint of milk cost. You know, just this sort of, do everyday experiences really mean, do, they, do, do, do people high up really understand what it's like? Uh, someone said, you know, to Ian Duncan Smith, you know, you, li you live on 50 pounds a week type of thing. But it works the other way too. Because again, if you don't, you know, you're really less empathic about people who work in the city if you never interact with them, if all you read is these articles about, you know. So it's something about that, and I think London is a really interesting place because 
Unlike France, where you get the you get pe most poor people are, are shoved out to the suburbs. In the in London, you get them side by side, but they still don't mix. So it's quite interesting about our sorts of cultures. But Guy Standing talks about this precariat. This one of the main problems for people is, yeah, there might be more jobs at the moment, but they're not good jobs. What they are is low-waged, insecure jobs. Um, they're not enough, so, they're so it's unstable. So often people are overqualified for what they're expected to do. So one of the things I used to do with students is about um, career and professional development. And what employers say now is, even if I'm not employing you to do a leadership job, I expect you to show leadership skills. So there's an incredible amount of um, expectation on very low jobs. So there's this idea that what's known, there's a very famous academic paper called emotional labor, which is the emotion that you're expected to put into your job as well as the skills. So increasingly jobs are, you know, you get this very disconnect between people who are doing for very low paid jobs. But there's this also this, you know, this is further idea that the way the economy is working is that Increasingly, all the burden of uncertainty is going towards people in working positions and not high management. You know, that actually everyone, you know, people are expected to be flexible at the bottom and at the top it's fine. You know, so one of the things that people don't seem to like about the bankers and, and bonuses is about this idea that people are being rewarded for not doing good work, whereas at the bottom you're expected to do more for less or for the same amount of money. So, this idea, so in terms of what people talk about future work, it's how do we create more secure work, where people feel there's some sort of um, link between effort and um, reward. Just one last one, it, this um, book called The Wellbeing Syndrome, which I quite enjoyed uh, reading extracts of. What they did is they went into offices that had lots of wellbeing initiatives, and they asked, did the staff benefit? And overall, they said they didn't really, because in lots of situations, these wellbeing, serve, these wellbeing initiatives were being used at the same time as redundancies, uh, cutting training and development. And they said it's, very, it's great to have well-being initiatives at work, but if they are really seen as a sort of cover of unstable working conditions, then people actually won't necessarily benefit at all. And the last point I'll make is that, you know, the, um, you know, that, you know that smiley face, the famous smiley face that's in the sort of associated with acid music in the 80s, and you see it lots and lots. And that's a very famous, it's copyrighted, which says something, you know, if you, I can't, in theory, I can't show it because it's owned by the World Smile Corporation. And it was someone called Harvey Ball who was an ad exec in America. But the interesting thing is he created that on commission from an organization that was undergoing redundancy with its staff and wanted an image that would calm and ease the staff's anxiety. And for me, that's so interesting about the dark side of happiness and well-being almost. That it, that it's all, it's sometimes it can be seen as being used to, um, to sort of offset the, um, the, the lack of well-being that exists in a company. I thought that was quite an interesting example. That was one of the Enfield Thinks pop-up learning lectures, a series to get you switched on to learning by Birkbeck University of London. Thanks to our partners, Enfield Council, Barnet Southgate College, Cable Manor College, the College of Haringey, Enfield and North East London and supported by the Mayor of London. Visit enfieldthinks.co.uk to discover more.